Never has a greater victory been won that first seemed to be such an agonizing and humiliating defeat. I think that summarizes in some sense what we're going to see this morning. Never has a greater victory been won that at first seemed to be such an agonizing and humiliating defeat. We're studying this morning one of the most important passages of the Old Testament, certainly of the book of Isaiah. It is profound in its message about God's making atonement for our sin. It is miraculous in the details of its prophecy given 700 years before Jesus Christ, and it is beautifully poetic as well, and we will see all of that this morning. This passage ultimately reveals how Yahweh sets about to defeat the power of sin, but what it describes will at first seem like unparalleled defeat. As we moved from Isaiah 40, we're in this section, Isaiah 40 through 55, and next week we'll finish up 54 and 55 in this section. But we've really been guided by that promise at the beginning of the section in Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort my people. And the source of that comfort for God's people is that he will bring an end to their warfare and will pardon their iniquity. That's what he says in Isaiah 40, verse 2. The comfort for his people rests in the end of warfare and the pardon of iniquity. We know that two massive obstacles stood before the people of Judah to whom Isaiah is writing these things. There was first their earthly circumstances. He is prophesying to them uh, of their capture by Babylon, that God will judge their sin by using Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and its temple and to take the people into captivity. Uh, beginning in around Isaiah 44, we see God talk about how he will rescue them from those circumstances, how those earthly circumstances will be overcome when he brings uh, Cyrus and Persia in to uh, take over Babylon and to free the captives at that point. And so the, the earthly circumstances are ultimately declared here as being overcome. And we see that the call is to the Jewish people that when that day comes, they are to celebrate that. They are to proclaim God's glory when he does that. The second obstacle, though, remains despite their earthly circumstances and the resolution of that coming through Persia, the second obstacle is their spiritual condition. The sin, the rebellion against God that brought them into exile and into captivity remains the obstacle between them and their creator. They are sinners and their sin is what still needs to be dealt with. And so when Isaiah 40 verse 2 says, pardon for iniquity, What's not clear yet at 700 BC is how does that pardon come about? What is it that actually removes sin? Certainly we know throughout the Old Testament the, the call of God's people is to trust God, put their faith in God. But the question is how is sin ultimately dealt with in a way that the sinful can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God and can be made at one with Him? The Jewish people, familiar with God's law, knew of the sin offering that is described throughout the law, going back to their days of wandering in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 29, verse 36, God instructs that there is a daily sacrifice of a bull who is a sin offering for atonement. It says in that verse, atonement, Kippur, we, we talk about Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. The, the, the idea of Kippur is, is covering it is the covering of the sin, and so the sacrifice of the bull sheds the blood that covers the sin, that, that turns God's wrath away. 
But then we come to the New Testament and we understand that there is a limit to what those offerings can do. Hebrews 10, 3, and 4 says, In these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the the sacrifices and the offerings are, are, are directed by God. They are something that the people are to faithfully do. They are important because they are a reminder of the fact that we are sinners and there is guilt. And there must somehow be a a removal of that sin. In the sacrifices and the offerings, they avert God's wrath for a time, but do not ultimately remove sin and its penalty. The barrier is there that, that causes this hostility. And so therefore, there must be a sacrifice sufficient to remove sin. When Isaiah 40 verse 2 says that there will be pardon of iniquity, the word for pardoned has the idea of someone who is well received. It is someone with whom you have a a good relationship, who you long to see, who when they come you are delighted by them. And so when it's saying pardon for iniquity, it's now saying that the circumstances change. Where there was hostility, there is now friendship. Where there was sin, there is now forgiveness. And the relationship is made right. And it's this spiritual condition of the people, the spiritual condition of of all people, for that matter, that must be remedied. Animal sacrifices were important. They served a purpose. They were symbolic. They exposed the need for a perfect sacrifice that would actually satisfy God's justice for lawbreakers and enable you and I to enter into his presence, into the presence of the Holy One. And so when we get to Isaiah 52, as we did last week, we see again the idea of a servant that that has been coming up throughout this section in these servant songs. We've seen three of them so far. God has been revealing a little bit at a time the coming of this one who, who seems to be tied with pardon from sin, seems to be the one who addresses man's sin. This servant we saw last week in the third servant song brings good news of happiness and peace. He brings about something that allows for there to be a a rightness to our relationship with God. Things are put at peace because of him. And and he emphasizes, we looked at last week, that, that that good news of peace ultimately rests in God's reign. It is because God is king that he is able to accomplish that which puts God and man in a way that we can be made righteous, in a way that we can stand before him. So we end last week with with the people being commanded to break forth in song. The servant is coming, this will happen, the servant will bear his strong arm before the world and salvation will be spread to the end of the earth and that is cause for rejoicing. And we get to Isaiah 52, verses 11 and 12, right at the end of the section that we were in last week. And he says in verse 11, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. He's speaking now in preparation for what is to come. This is a place where some commentators will say, well, this is, this is really talking about Babylon and the people as they are being commanded about coming out of Babylon uh, and, and, and purifying themselves and coming out. But we've seen that already, the, the, the dealing with the physical circumstances. Back in chapter 48, God explicitly said, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. So that's really been a focal point before, 
But if you remember, after he says that, to go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, rejoice over what God has done to rescue you, then you come to the end of chapter 48 and he says, there is no peace for the wicked. We're back to that. There's still that problem. There's still that dilemma between God and man, and that is our sin. There's still that experience of our need to repent and in some way of bringing us to atonement. And so when he's saying here, depart, touch no unclean thing, purify yourselves, I I think he's really speaking in terms of preparing us for what is to come in the same way that John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 is preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah. He is coming, you need to repent of your sins, the one that God has sent. And so here in Isaiah, he's preparing us for what we're about to read, and that is the coming of the servant. We we need to, to see in this the coming of God's Messiah. And that's the tone that's set in Isaiah 52. Comfort for God's people will come through his salvation, which will be brought by his servant. And so Isaiah 52, 13, and this is, again, I know we've said this before, but this is one of those unfortunate chapter breaks. We we would very much, we we talk about Isaiah 53 as a unit. It really begins back in 52, 13. It's a sort of five uh, part sort of unit that goes together. And so the chapter break between 52 and 53 is not the most helpful, but 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Look, my servant, fourth servant song, fourth unfolding of something about this servant. Look and see this servant, and this again will run through the end of chapter 53. And two things should jump at you immediately in verse 13. First, when it says, my servant shall act wisely, CSB says he will be successful. Other translations say he will prosper. What does it mean here about the servant? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. I'll give you another perhaps familiar Old Testament verse to help you see what wisely means. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord says to Joshua to not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. That's, That's the same Hebrew word that's being used in 52.13 when it says servant shall act wisely, good success. And, and you get a really good description of it there in, in Joshua in that what it, what it says is that you who meditate on the word, who read it, take it in and do what it says, you will find good success. You, you will be blessed by your creator and you will be effective in the things that you do. And so that's the idea when he says, look, my servant shall act wisely. He will do what he is told to do by the father. He will obey the father's will. This, this servant, we've said this before, will do what, what all other previous servants, Israel and all others, failed to do. He will accomplish God's will fully and perfectly. So acting wisely is this idea that he will accomplish what he's called to do. But what should really jump out at verse 13 is this description of he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Where have we heard that before in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah comes into the throne room of God and he stands in awe of what he sees and it says in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now that language is being applied to the servant. 
God in his throne room. God will be exalted. He is transcendent. He is above all. He is holy. He is matchless. All of that we, we see in Isaiah 6.1 because we see Isaiah's response and becoming aware of his own sin. And he's immediately aware of the holiness and majesty of God. And that language of high and lifted up, that combination of words is used two other places in Isaiah. Uh, 33.10 and 57.15. And in both places, it's referring to God. So you have Isaiah 6, those two references. And now you have this servant who is high and lifted up and exalted. And so still today, a, a common response to this servant that, that God is speaking about, particularly the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 by those who object to Jesus, the common interpretation is this is the nation of Israel. This is Israel suffering at the hands of, of enemy nations. We've already seen in the prior descriptions of the servant that it's very much described as an individual one who is born of a woman, one who has the characteristics of, of personality, who is unique as an individual. But now what you've got is Isaiah saying, look, he's using the language of God to describe this servant. So he is, he is equating the servant to one who has no equal. If there's one message we've taken away from Isaiah by this time, it is that God is God alone, that there is God and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other. So what does it mean that now the servant is described in the language of Yahweh as high and lifted up and exalted? It can only mean one thing, that this is indeed God. This is the Messiah. This is not Israel. This is the royal Messiah. This is the promised one. This is the the strong arm of the Lord who will come uh, from the line of David, who will be the king, who will sit on the throne forever. This is that one unique Savior. It is God in flesh. And yet the servant songs have told us he will be abhorred and despised. And yet by God's grace, he will persist and he will have strength for ministry. But his ministry will not just be to the house of Israel, right? It will be to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, to the coastland. So repeatedly we're told this servant will, will minister beyond just Israel. There's something unique about this one. But now here's, here's where I think this introduction, and I called it a shocking introduction. It's verses 14 and 15, because you've got this picture that you've equated to Isaiah 6 of this coming matchless servant, and then you come to verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Verse 14 says many were astonished at his appearance. The CSB says many were appalled probably closer to the meaning because the Hebrew has the idea of a look of horror. There's something, I, I see this one and, and I, I, I see something that almost looks devastated in some way. Now, now certainly we immediately go to the cross and we think of Jesus's appearance on the cross after being beaten and nailed to the cross. And that's certainly part of this, but I would suggest to you that when he also speaks about kings and, and, and this, this large scale reaction, this is pointing to the world's observation in the coming of Jesus Christ, in the coming of the servant, because they've 
they, they've thought to this point, and, and for good reason, they thought, this is the strong arm of the Lord. This is a king. This is a mighty one. And suddenly they see one whose ministry is, is humble, speaks truth, and certainly speaks with, with great power, and yet he gives himself over to suffering. He doesn't, he doesn't strike back. To use the words of, of one commentator, the nations are appalled by the appearance of one who would prefer to lose than to win for the wrong reasons. The whole simplicity of his coming, we're, we're going to be talking about the incarnation, right, over the next few weeks as, as we talk about his birth and the, 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 the simple beginnings earthly beginnings of Jesus, the meekness of his work. All of that is what's coming into this assessment of people going, oh, I can't believe this. I, this is not what I expected. Even if you had told me everything about him from, from what I've seen in Isaiah, I'm expecting a strong king, one who's going to save his people. And now you're you're sending this one who doesn't look like a king, who didn't come from a, a seem like he came out of a palace or was born in, in, in riches, doesn't show any of the trappings of power. In fact, he seems humble and gentle, and he's ready to lay down his life for his people. And they are astonished. This is not the strong king they highly anticipated. We, we, we see this in the Gospels. And when we, we marvel at the response in the Gospels, we see it prophesied here that there's something just stunning about this one. The meaning of verse 15 is a little bit more difficult. So shall he sprinkle many nations seems to be a term of, of purifying, could indeed still be pointing to a future fulfillment, even at the second coming of Jesus when, when he purifies all of his people here on earth. The, the, the idea that um, what we saw in, in Isaiah 49 last week when it says that the kings who despise and abhor him will prostrate themselves before him and see him as Lord. It could be pointing to sort of that second coming of Jesus Christ. But what's, what, what's definitely clear from, from verse 15 is that the servant speaks and acts in ways that the people did not expect. They either, like many of the Gentiles, had not been taught this, didn't know it in the first place, and now they see it, and, and this one is supposed to be a king, or, or what they've heard just doesn't make sense in the light of this one that they now see. And so this gets elaborated on in verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Many of the Gentiles may not have heard of such a thing as this servant, but Isaiah is saying that, that now even many who did still don't believe. So again, fast forward to the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the repeated times in which the crowds walked away from him, in which they abandoned him, in which the servant had come, and yet they did not receive him. John 12, 37 and 38, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is not what we expected. This is not what we bargained for. It, it, it just doesn't seem like this was exactly the way that we thought that you revealed it, and, and they are confused. And that verse really also helps set us up for the rest. Because one of the things it emphasizes is this is God revealing. This is God's revelation. The notion that God would take on flesh, come as a servant, and be sinless, and yet give himself 
over to the injustice of man and be put to death is not a Hollywood script. It, it doesn't work the way man would write it. Man would not design his salvation based on the suffering of this one perfect sacrifice. This has to be revealed by God. And again, I, 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 I would encourage you, we, we know how the story goes from the Gospels, but back yourself up to 700 BC, and this is, this is being unfolded to you, this servant who, who looks like he'll address sin and provide pardon, and he's not what we thought, and this is hard truth, and this is why God is saying he is the one who reveals this. And, and it also says in 53.1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I, I, I think it helps us see connection again between strength, power, the arm of the Lord, and humble, gentle servant who's willing to give himself. We look at that, if we take again, what, not knowing what we already know, and you just come into this, you think, that's got to be two different people. There's got to be one powerful one and one weak one. And, and what God is saying, no, the arm of the Lord, I'm, I'm, what I'm revealing to you is consistent. It is both the strength of the Lord to save and to come for his people, and it is also the meekness of the Lord to be humble and to suffer. The two are perfectly joined in the servant, in Christ. So verse 2, let's read verses 2 and 3. For he, this is now the, the servant, for the servant grew up before him, would be Yahweh from the previous verse, for the servant grew up before Yahweh like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. All right, we've read the, the shocking introduction that, that this one who is high and lifted up, his appearance seems marred and, and people move back from him and now it's in clear the, the servant's rejection. It is the people fully rejecting him. The, the young plant and, and the root out of dry ground probably echoes back to chapter 11. And if you remember that wilderness scene for Judah when it looks like all is lost going forward and then there's this little shoot that's coming up out of a stump in the middle of the wilderness and it is the, it is the promise of life. It is the promise that something is coming. There's, there's hope still on the horizon in a, in a barren and destroyed land. God is bringing forth this root, this one that blossoms forward. Not a, not a lush fruit tree, not a mighty oak, just this one little one shoot that, that's coming forth. And that, that speaks to the birth of Jesus Christ and his humble origins, the, the one who's not recognized at his birth by most, who, whose birth is not even known by most. But, but it also speaks to the miraculous element in that this, this life is coming up out of dry ground. That, that's not good horticulture. It doesn't usually work that way. But this is God's work. And then there's that indication of the servant's nearness to the Lord. He grew up before him like a young plant. We've seen exalted, high, and lifted up. Now it's saying the servant who is high and lifted up also has been before Yahweh, the one just mentioned in verse 1. And so once again, we're getting this, this interesting connection that the servant's not just some man who is plucked out of nowhere, but he is one who has a pre-existing relationship, if you will, with Yahweh. The Hebrew word then for despised, when you get down to verse 3, he was despised and rejected, and he uses despised twice there again at the, the end of the verse. Pictures worthless. We start to see the rejection. 
He had no form or majesty, no beauty that we should desire him, despised and rejected. The servant, for all of the people who are observing, looks ordinary. Uh, it certainly doesn't look royal. There's, there's, there's just nothing there that's going to draw people to say, this is a natural born leader. Like Saul, ah, Saul, he's so tall, he must be a king. Or David and his ruddy complexion is described, you know, and, and you just, you sort of see king around that person. And this says, nope. People, in fact, by despising him say, we don't even want to give him the time of day. He's worthless. He's, he's not doing anything for us. He doesn't bring anything to us. Commentator John Oswalt writes this. Not only does he lack any particularly attractive features to draw us to him, but he is full of his own problems. He's not one of the winners. He's one of the losers. It is axiomatic that losers cannot deliver other losers. He is a man of pain and sickness. What can he do for the rest of us? That's the description that Isaiah is giving to us here as they're looking and saying, this, this is the servant? This is the one we've been singing about and, and waiting for? Now we don't even give him a second thought. We expected the arm of the Lord. This one's useless. Now, that language that Oswald uses, a man of pain and sickness, is another way that you could translate verse 3's man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It does not mean that Jesus was weak or sickly and always kind of sad. In fact, if we read on, we understand what he means by that because he explains it in the next verse, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 4 is very quick to clarify what is meant by man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief. And the servant's relationship to sorrows and griefs is that he bore our griefs and sorrows. And this third section now is this stunning reversal. Up until this point prior to, to starting to understand him bearing sin in verse 4, up until this point, the assumption of those who look on and who see the servant is, what did he do wrong? He must have done something to be this despised. He must have done something to be this worthless. Now listen, that's not a, a foreign thought to the Old Testament because you see it even in the dealing with the kings, the, the kings who are obedient are blessed and the nation is blessed and when they rebel and they are disobedient then the nation falls under God's curse and there is punishment. But that line of thinking was common in, in ancient thought. Look at the book of Job, right? And his counselors. When, when Job has been set aside by God and this is a particular uh, occurrence in his life that is done for a reason to glorify God and yet what do his counselors say? Job, you're terrible, man. You, you've done something really wrong to deserve this kind of mess. Zophar says to him in, in, in Job 11, he says, basically God's, God's exacting less out of you than you must deserve for your guilt. You must have done something really terrible. So up to this point, if we're putting our shoes back in 700 BC, we're looking at the servant thinking, what terrible thing did he do to deserve this kind of rejection? 
what's up? I mean, I know God sent him, but just like the kings, just like David, who was God's anointed, he must have done something wrong to deserve this. As verse 4 says, we esteemed him, we reckoned him as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We, in our bright judgment, said he's done something wrong, and God has judged him in this way. That, that word for afflicted, uh, or stricken, I should say, in some context is used of one who has leprosy. We, we figured out that he must be one who God is punishing now in, in some way and, and setting aside. But what's the point of verses four through six? He is stricken because we are sinners. He is stricken and afflicted on account of us. It is our sin that brings about his suffering. Every bit of misfortune that the Lord's servant experiences is what we deserve. It's what we have rightfully earned by virtue of our rebellion against the God of creation. This, is, this should be our biography that's being described here. There's pain and suffering that I should experience for my words and my thoughts and my deeds and all of my breaking of God's law. And yet verses 4 through 6 are saying, Jesus carried my sin. Jesus suffered in his body because my sin was placed on him and the judgment that I deserve was poured out on him. He's not bearing a burden with us. He's bearing a burden for us. He's carrying it in our place. So now you and I look at Jesus' suffering in a whole new light. The Son of God is standing where I should be. And yet he, he willingly accepted the despicable consequences that you and I know we would run from, and yet we deserve. And yet he willingly stood and received them in our place. And so it says he was pierced and crushed for our sins. The Hebrew for pierced is to pierce through, to bore a hole through, commonly used to, to speak of a fatal wound. The word for crushed means pretty much what you think it is, crowned, pulverized in, in, in some way. He is experiencing what we deserve. And, and, and it's stressing the necessity of the servant's suffering for our sin. So friends, when we, when we downplay our sin, when we make excuses for our sin, when we try to blame shift our sin, we try to say, ah, it's just who I am, ah, just a little bit of a mistake, we, we probably need to revisit Isaiah 53.5 and remember how Yahweh sees our sin and what it cost, what the price of that sin is and how it was born in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 ends with his, with his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. This gets used a lot by modern preachers, sort of the health and wealth prosperity gospel to say, see, as believers you should never be sick because Jesus, when he died, all of you've been healed from all of your diseases by his wounds. I would suggest to you, you've got to take this phrase completely out of context to come to that conclusion because everything in this context is dealing very clearly with our sin. Our sin and that which separates us from God, that which causes us to be broken. Everything we've seen up to this point is about how we are enemies of God and the greatest thing we need healing from is that divide from Him. We, we need someone to heal that in us in a way that we can now be brought to him and made right with him. And so someone has to remedy that alienation. 
don't get me wrong, there will be a day when pain and suffering and death will be no more. Revelation 21 celebrates that there will be no more tears or sorrow. And that was accomplished. That ultimate victory goes back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by all means. But in this context, this is not saying, therefore, believer, you should have a sickness-free life and should always be in perfect health because Jesus died for that. It's not saying that we never experience sickness. This is about healing the great divide between us and God and being brought near to him. He uses sheep imagery in verse 6. There'll be two places, verse 6 and verse 7, where the sheep come in. This one is us. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned to his own way. We, we, we know enough about sheep to know that they are not regarded as the brightest of animals, that if, if they get outside the sheepfold, that their mission is the next piece of grass, and then that piece of grass, and then that piece of grass over there. And, and so the picture he gives here is that they, they'll just keep wandering. They'll just keep wandering unless there's a shepherd who restrains them in some way and draws them back. They'll eventually be at a place where they won't know where the sheepfold is anymore. And, and there's no retrieving them at that point. They are effectively lost, which is how the New Testament frequently describes us as sinners in need of a Savior. Lost and dead in our sin. Unable to commend ourselves back to the shepherd or to say, I'll, I'll find my way, shepherd. I'll, I'll come when it's time. No, we are wandering because, in, in fact, the picture he gives here is we turn to our own way. Just like sheep who sat. I want that grass over there, and I, I'm going to go get it, and I'm not, I'm not thinking about any other dangers or consequences of this. And that's us. That's us in our sin, doing, pursuing our own treasure, pursuing our own pleasure, pursuing whatever it is that, that brings delight to us and, and disregarding the holy God of the universe. And here we are as sheep. And once, well, we are born in this condition, that the sheep wanders into this condition, but what ultimately must happen, there must be some act of divine justice. Something has to happen to get the lost sheep to the Savior, to the shepherd, and that's, that's what we're going to continue to read about here. The servant must stand in our place, and this is the only way a holy God can justify sinners and still be just himself. The penalty of sin must be paid. So verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth." Sinful injustice. It's our fourth section. Sin, man's sinful injustice. We've seen that the servant's death was an act of divine justice. At the end of the last section, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has taken all of our wandering in sin and he has put it on Christ and punished it in Christ. So that's divine justice. Now what we're seeing is the role that man's sin also plays in God accomplishing his substitutionary atonement. God makes use of man's evil to accomplish the punishment and the crucifixion of his son. This is what's taught in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when it says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, delivered up to be crucified, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There is the 
sovereign will of God that affected the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for the sake of the atonement of, for, for sinners, but it is also done through the lawless deeds of evil men. The actions of man still fit under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. And we'll see that very clearly when we get down to verse 10, that this is all God's will. But these verses 7 through 9 really emphasize man's treatment of the servant. Twice the passage speaks of oppression. The Hebrew word there for oppression is the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 3 when it talks about the Egyptian taskmasters. And so taskmaster oppression has that same connotation. They, they put on the Hebrew slaves and said, make more bricks, but we're not giving you any more straw. We're, we're forcing you to do more, but we're not equipping you to do it. And so the, the picture of oppression is those who oppressed Jesus demanded his crucifixion. Even though scripture's clear, he'd done nothing wrong. He'd done nothing to deserve it. And yet they were acting completely unjustly toward him and requiring something that was unjust. And so Jesus is humiliated and falsely judged by Pilate. Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders. When verse 9 speaks of oppression and judgment, it's almost ironic in the sense that there was no justice. There was no, there was no righteous judgments. In fact, true justice was withheld from Jesus. The, the, the Jewish religious leaders even had to violate their own principles and the, the trial and the condemning of Jesus in order to get him crucified. They withheld any justice. The servant is fully innocent. End of verse 9 says he had done no violence and no deceit in his mouth. Nothing he said or did was sinful, much less worthy of of this, of, of what's being done to him. And they beat him, and they crucified him, and they cut him off from the land of the living. Verse 7 is that other sheep reference. Now this time it is Jesus who's seen in the role of the lamb being taken for sacrifice. Jesus is not a sheep in the sense of of sort of the ignorant kind of picture. He's not blindly being led to slaughter and not knowing what awaits him when he goes into this room. That's not the case. He knowingly, willingly goes. But the picture here of, of, of the lamb is he does not fight back. The strong arm of the Lord, when being treated unjustly, entrusts himself to him who judges justly. And he doesn't fight back. He doesn't curse back. He doesn't speak back with threats of violence. He knowingly, willingly endures as a sheep who's being led to slaughter. It's no small point here that the the language of sacrifice is is brought in at this point when it speaks of the, the lamb being led to slaughter, it's beginning to remind us again of the Old Testament and the the sacrifices, the the lamb who was sacrificed, the Passover lamb whose blood was put on the doorpost to to provide covering for the people. And so now as we're seeing a lamb slaughtered, we're, we're being reminded again here that this is a sacrifice for sin. The other thing we should note, up to this point, his the servant's death has been implied, pierced and crushed, certainly implied. At this, at this point now, it's clear. He is slaughtered, he is cut off from the land of the living, and he is buried in a tomb. The cost of our sin is nothing less than death. Again, it's a, it's a reminder to us of the seriousness of our sin. There is no other way around it. There must be a penalty of death. And in this case, there must be one who is pure and innocent and sinless who bears that penalty so that we might be made right with our Creator. Let's read the last section, verses 10 through 12. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Salvation secured. If you're reading this 700 years before Christ, at some point as you're going through this, you're saying, why? Why does this have to happen? Why does this this servant who comes and who commits no violence and says no deceit, who does nothing wrong, why does this happen? Why, Lord, would you cause this? You've already shown us that all the time we were thinking he did something wrong and now it's our wrong that's put him here, so why? Now, before we answer that, I I just want you to think for a second, just at that beginning of verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I'll, I'll reference the Christian standard again. It says the Lord was pleased to crush him. The the term in the Hebrew really means pleased or delighted. Now, for starters, that that teaches what what we saw earlier in Acts 2, and that is that man is committing evil, and he is putting Jesus on the cross, and he is beating him and nailing him there, but this this is all the will of God. This is not contrary to God's plan. In fact, this is what God determined to happen And there is a sense in which God is pleased at this. Again, we should pause at that and go, wait, why? Because this is is the supreme and most perfect case of the greater good. Any father would read this passage and and say, "I, I could not ever think of any good for which my own child should be crushed. Makes no sense. And and I know that the love of God the Father for his son is supreme and perfect. He loves his son even more than than I love my son. So now it really doesn't make sense. And yet the Father's pleasure ultimately is in what the sacrifice accomplishes. This is very similar to Hebrews 12.2 when it speaks of Jesus himself. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. How does joy come into enduring the cross? Because it's what the cross will accomplish, what, what happens as a result. Commentator Andrew Davis writes this, The actual torture of Jesus was an agony beyond measure for the Father as he showed by darkening the skies eerily and by shaking the ground when his son died. This was immeasurable pain followed by infinite pleasure and joy. What what pleased God, what caused Jesus to approach the cross even with joy set before him is because of what it accomplished, because of what, what he did. Sorry. Jesus Christ who died childless, who, again, from a cultural point of view, looked like a loser, at least from the culture's perspective. Jesus, it says in this passage, will see all those descendants of Abraham who become children of God. Jesus 
had joy set before him because he saw you and I as those who would belong to him and all of the other generations who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And so that is, it is the Father's pleasure to crush him because atonement is accomplished. It is the Father's will in, in Jesus' suffering. Verse 11, I think, is just such an incredible picture of, of, of even Jesus' view of this in terms of when it says that the servant, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It's not a complete analogy, but the closest I can get to this is the mother who has just given birth and who has endured the pain of labor and who has experienced the, 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 the physical trauma that, that goes on in childbirth and sees that child and is satisfied. There is such a sense of, of joy and peace. And here, it doesn't say that the Savior somehow forgets his suffering, the memory doesn't simply vanish, but rather in his anguish, through his anguish, through that intense labor, he still sees what the outcome is, and he is satisfied with that outcome. It was effective, and it was worth every bit, because now many are made righteous, and their iniquities are pardoned. They are put in a favorable place with God, and that's solely because the servant has borne their sins in his body and has suffered the condemnation that you and I deserve. Let me just say, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, that this is, this is a, a solemn passage that, that brings you and I face to face with the horror of our sin and causes us to worship Jesus even more. But if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, this passage says to you, there is no other way of dealing with your sin. You cannot do this. You cannot earn it. You cannot make it. God sacrificed his own son for sin. And so you must trust in his son in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The pardon for iniquity is promised and it is there. But the price for our sin was the death of a perfect sacrifice. The father's only son, his beloved son. And your only hope for forgiveness and salvation and peace and eternal joy is trusting fully in Christ alone. And in the end, verse 12 shows us there is glorious celebration. The servant who willingly and sacrificially gave himself to the pain and the despicable shame of the cross will be victorious. He will be king. He will conquer sin and death, and he will receive the spoils of his victory. And so I would just say this in closing, and I said it to you right at the beginning of the message. Isaiah 53 is, is majestic in its form. This is a beautiful piece of literature, just as literature in terms of the poetic structure of it and the way it takes us from this shocking introduction to this glorious conclusion, and we see this story unfold. Isaiah 53 is miraculous in its prophecy. 700 years before Christ, it is detailing the origins, the earthly origins, and the life and ministry and the death and burial of Jesus Christ. You have to do incredible gymnastics with the, the text and, and still won't come up with it if you try to make this anything other than Jesus Christ. Because this is as explicit as you can get in terms of describing one who comes in humble, meek order, who is despised and rejected throughout his ministry, and then ultimately is pierced and crushed for sins, 700 years before Jesus. And finally, I would say this passage is profound in its message. 
Friends, this is our hope. This is why we sing. This is why we we look forward to eternity because because we understand the suffering of Jesus Christ and it, it, it should be a consistent reminder that we deserve shame and suffering. But Jesus came and he took it on himself. And where Isaiah doesn't yet go is all the way through to the resurrection. He's taken us up to the sacrifice for sins and he's caused us to stand in awe of what God is doing through this servant in order to make you and I at one with him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, as we read this passage, it directs our thoughts and our affections toward you. Lord, it, it causes us to see you, Jesus, as high and lifted up. And it speaks to us of, of one day standing in your presence and of seeing the, the scars from the nails and of knowing the, the suffering that you endured and that you did it in order to claim us as one of your own. Lord Jesus, we, as we read this passage, it gives us longing for that day when not only will we see you, but we will enter your presence forever to experience everlasting joy with the conquering king as he, as he divides the spoils, as he enjoys the, the fruit of his labor. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you from each of us who, who loves you and who trusts in you and who has been reminded afresh of your suffering on our behalf. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning, anyone listening online who is not fully trusting in Christ, who's not sure what would happen if they suddenly faced death and how they could possibly stand before their creator, I pray that today would be the day that they would see it is only through Christ, that, that salvation is only found in his name through his death and his resurrection, and they must simply trust in him. Lord, thank you that you save sinners. Lord, as we enter into this new week, as we go through hardships and difficulties, as we battle with temptations and sin, bring us back to this sobering picture in Isaiah 53 to remember what our Savior did and the cost of our sin and to cry out to you for, for help, for power, for grace, that we might walk as those who have been redeemed, as those who have been pardoned and made right before you. These things we pray in the name of our eternal King, Jesus Christ. Amen.